Okay. Um, Acts chapter 24 uh, is where we're at. And if you need a Bible, we would love for you to read along with us. Okay. And some our interns will actually bring you a Bible. You can meet them right now if you want to follow along with us uh, by grabbing a Bible and, and, and reading through the text as we preach through it. Don't feel weird about this. We pass them out every single week. If you don't own one, you do now. Take this one and, uh, and um, bring it home with you. Okay. So Acts chapter 24. Now, I've been given a recap to the book of Acts like every time I've had a chance to preach through this sermon, uh, through this sermon series, because I think it's super important that we get context. And someone this week came up to me and said, hey man, like why do you keep telling us like what's going on in Acts? Like I've been here every single week and, and you just keep bringing it up. And I just looked and I said, dude, you're not the only guy at church. And his response was great. He goes, oh yeah. <laughs> I was like, dude, that was brilliant. It was super profound. And so... Uh, so here's what's going on in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story of the early church, right? It's Jesus after ascending to heaven, after I mean, what we call the gospel story. Like he lives this perfect life that we all wish we could live, and he does it on our behalf. He, he dies a death on the cross. He suffers the death that we deserve to die because of our sin. He raises up on the third day, and before he goes to show, man, I want this whole gospel story to go to the entire world, he then sends his church out and says, man, bring this, uh, this story, it's Acts 1-8, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in other words, from right here and beyond and beyond and beyond unto the ends of the earth. And that's kind of where we're at. We're wrapping up. We have four more weeks in the book of Acts, which is crazy because it's a 40-week series, and we're almost done with it. Four weeks left. Uh, and what we see towards the end here is one of the main characters of the story, this guy named Paul, who used to be one of the greatest persecutors of the church, who's now one of the greatest evangelists and pastors in the church, um, he is getting persecuted heavily. That at every turn, it seems like people are not happy with what he brings to the table as he preaches the gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Now, but in the midst of that, what we see God doing behind the scenes, even in the midst of all the world trying to push him down, God continues to lift him up and lift him up and lift him up. And so in his own calling, similar to Acts 1.8, which says the gospel will go into the world, Paul has a similar calling just in his life, and it's from Acts 9.15, and it says this, the Lord said to him, go, and it's talking about Paul here, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, if you've been tracking with us or if you're familiar with the book of Acts, he's, he's talked to Gentiles. Like much of his ministry has been constantly going to the Gentiles over and over. Gentiles being non-Jewish people. For most of us in the room, that's you, okay? Um, but he's also gone to the children of Israel. He's gone to his Hebrew brothers and sisters. And that there's this last little part of kings that I wonder as he thinks through this, this word, this prophecy given to him from the Lord that he would preach amongst all these groups. He's yet to hit the kings, but he's about to. And I just began to think through this calling of over Paul's life, and I remembered this story from when I was in college. I, I got saved uh, in college my freshman year, and then about 10 days after I'd say I really gave my life to the Lord, um, a, uh, an organization called Camps Crusade for Christ uh, came up to me and approached me, and I kind of knew a couple of them, but 10 days in, they said, hey man, you want to lead the evangelism team? And I said, I've been a Christian for 10 days. I'm not sure that qualifies, right? <laughs> and they say, oh, well, no, well, you're loud and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I was like, all right, fair enough. And so what I immediately thought to do was go to the internet and search how to convert people, right? <laughs> and, 
And what comes up is, uh, is this Knowing God Personally booklet from Campus Crusade for Christ, which is the four spiritual laws. And, and this was like the, the time in, in Christendom where like a tract was like, this is how you get someone saved, right? And so I ordered like 200, 300 of these things, and I just littered campus, right? Like I was, just pa- I was making it rain with KGPs, right? And just thinking like, this is it. Like the, the internet told me this is how people get saved Give them this, it's done. And so I must have saved like 10,000 people at San Diego State, and I don't even know it, right? I'll see them in heaven, and they'll say thank you. And so, and so this was like my entire mentality, right? Now, in the midst of this, I go and I give this one to this guy, and this guy says to me, uh, he was already a Christian. He ended up being one of my closest friends. His name was Stephen, and he was like, like Christian Eminem. Like he was just this white dude that was like, he, <laughs> Christian Eminem is what I said not the candy, Andy, okay? And so, um, and so he goes, this, this is just getting out of way for me this morning, but uh, he says to me, he goes, you know, brother, man, like, why are you so strong in the Lord? You know, he's like doing that, and I'm like, I don't know. And, and, uh, and he says, you know what I see in your life? And I was like, well, I said, well, he's like, you're going to preach to kings, bro. And I was like, dang, dude, all right. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, like, I immediately get this picture and this vision of me at the UN converting the world, right? I'm like, <laughs> here we go, like, this is about to go down. Here's a KGP ambassador to China, you know, like, um, and, and on top of that, there was this moment where, where uh, Billy Graham, uh, ever heard of him, right, so he, a great evangelist, comes and preaches at this crusade in San Diego at Qualcomm Stadium, which is where the Chargers used to play before they became traitors and moved to LA, okay, and so, um, but at Qualcomm Stadium, it holds like 55,000 people. And so Billy Graham packs this thing out. I was on the field because I was like one of the counselors. And I kept thinking like, oh, I'm going to preach to kings. Like there's probably some kings here. And so I'm like, Billy's going to call me up. Like he's going to be like, hey, I need, I need Vince. Like I need Vince to come on up and preach for me. Like these were the thoughts that run through my mind. Like these are the expectations of an early Christian that dealt with serious pride and arrogance issues, okay? Now, none of that obviously happened, Okay. And, and what actually happened is I, like, didn't really talk to anyone or preach anyone because as soon as it found out that I was terrible at my outreach position, they kicked me off of it. They're like, dude, you're not doing anything. I said, well, I gave out all these things, you know. And so what happened was is, is my expectation for what this word was going to be was not the reality that it came in. And oftentimes we say this here, but the gap between expectation and reality is where all your hurt, pain, and frustration exists right? And so if this, if this is where I, I want this and I expect this, but life usually comes here, that's where it all kind of goes wrong, okay? And, and really the question for Paul, and as I began to think through his narrative and try and jump into him in this story, is man, what's going through his mind as he's been told by God, man, you're going to go preach to kings, and now he finds himself at every turn almost getting killed, right? That the kings he's supposed to preach to hate him and want to destroy him and tear him down, that even his friends are betraying him. And I just wonder, man, does he still believe and how does he persevere? And, and last week we saw that internally he persevered because he believed this one solid truth. And it wasn't all that profound, but we resolved last week that Jesus is real and he's alive, right? Like that, that's all it kind of took for him was just, no, like Jesus is a real guy and he was actually rose from the dead. And so what he said, what he's promised means some things. And so, man, I will continue to persevere. And it was like this internal resolution that I think was in his soul. And what we get today, I think, is the external side of that. Because the Christian is not just called to endure, but it's called to move forward and push back darkness. 
right? It's not just called to, okay, we'll hunker down in the midst of persecution and, and stay really tight in the foundation, know what you believe, and just stay there. No, no, no. We are to be on the offensive, right? Like the church is supposed to go into the world to push back sin and darkness and pain, and oftentimes we just kind of go, well, let me just, let me just keep it here. And it has to be a both and. We have a saying here called gospel-centered and outward-focused, that the gospel is so constantly renewing and changing hearts, reminding us of who we are in Christ, that then we go and give it away, right? That you were saved from Satan, sin, and death, but you were saved unto good works. And it's always a both and, never an either or. And so again, what I think what we get out of Paul here is an opportunity to step into, man, what were the questions that, that maybe he was asking, questions that I think would be helpful for us today as we figure, man, like as, as persecution, as difficulty maybe continues to reign in your life, wherever it may be, and I don't know if like Paul, if you have a lot of people plotting to kill you right now, um, maybe that doesn't exist, but you've got stuff, right, that makes this life difficult. Like I guarantee you all of our brothers and sisters and just humanity that exists in the southeast right now, in Florida and all the islands, are trying to navigate through faith in light of what just happened and what will happen. And what does it not look like just to endure for them and say, no, this is who Jesus is, but also continue to then be the light they're supposed to be? And so what we have today is is four different questions uh, that I want to ask us as we go through the text that will help kind of narrate for us what this means for us to do this well. Um, And the last thing before we jump into the text, which again is a lot like last week, very narrative, so we'll move fast through the the text, is there's one presupposition that the church has to all believe for this to make any sense. And if you don't believe it, everything I say will be foolishness, okay? And that simple truth is this, that the best, here, this is for Christians, right? The best thing, the best gift that you have to offer this world is Jesus. Like more, more than anything else you can give, present, show, or do, the best thing you have to offer the hurting world is God himself, Okay, and, and, and like, so constantly, it's, it's, it's not, so there's a uh, store in Phoenix called Last Chance. Is anyone familiar with Last Chance? Yeah, see, there you go. Uh, is anyone familiar with the gospel? Okay, you guys are lucky. I thought you were going to be quiet. Okay, uh, but so this store, Last Chance, if you don't know it real quick, it's like all the Nordstrom's in the world, they give all their stuff to Nordstrom Rack when they don't sell it. All the Nordstrom Racks are like, yeah, we can't sell it. So it all goes to this one store in Phoenix called Last Chance, and it's amazing. Like, I literally, these shoes, like, you become this guy, right? <laughs> Guess how much I got these shoes for? $12.99, right? Right? $12.99. Amen, brother. Okay, amen. Um, I became like an evangelist for Last Chance. Like I literally, I would tell everybody, like, man, you wouldn't believe where I got these. You got to go down to the store. It's amazing. They reload all the time. If you just wait, you snag it. It's amazing. I would give tips on like how to get all the shoes. So like you got to wait for the aisle to open. Then when you go in, don't even look. Just start grabbing shoes and throwing them in your basket. And then you try them on later, friend. And so like I had this whole thing about Last Chance. And no joke, God, in his like wisdom, was like, you're like, you love last chance more than the gospel. And I said, why do you think that? He says, because you never talk about the gospel, but you always talk about last chance. And I thought to myself, like, do I think the best gift I have to offer the world is Jesus or some shoes? And that sounds foolish and silly right now, but man, I ask us, like, what do you normally talk about? 
Like, what falls off your lips? What do you care most about giving away? And is it, man, awesome fashion tips? Or is it, man, the, the living God of the universe wants a personal relationship with you? That in everything that has been hurting and lost, he comes to seek to fulfill. Not just here, but for eternity. How often, man, am I just heralding a, a different gospel story that's not nearly as good? And so again, everything I'll say is foolishness if you don't believe the best thing, Christian, that you have to give away is Jesus. Okay? All right. Verse 1, chapter 24 There's going to be an accusation against Paul, and we'll start there. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. If we have heard, we have found this man a plague, talking about Paul, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So you have these Jews that keep trying to get Paul, and they're buttering up Felix. They're being really, like, they're just flattering him to death, even though they hated Felix. Like, when you look back at the old history, they couldn't stand the guy, but they're standing before him, which is already kind of giving us this background into, these guys are shady, right? And the the accusations that they're bringing against Paul are going to be unfounded, which were three. The first one was that Paul stirs up riots across the world. Now, this would have been the biggest and most key one for for the Roman Empire to really look into, because that's something called the Pax Romana, which meant the peace of Rome. And there's a certain way that life was supposed to be lived in the empire of Rome, and when you began to distort that peace, it was a serious and a criminal offense, right? And so they come at him with that. The second one was that, the second one was that he's a ringleader of a sect of Nazarenes, right? So in other words, he's the, one of the leaders of this Christian movement, which is somewhat true. And then the last one is Paul uh, tried to profane the temple, okay? So in other words, there were some stories, if you go back to the book of Acts, where they thought he brought this, uh, this, uh, this non-Jew into the temple, which would have been illegal at the time, but he didn't. And so all of the arguments are unfounded, right? They're distorted versions of the story, which leads us to our first question. Does the content of your witness, okay, the content of your witness offend the self-righteous? Because it should, okay? Does the content of your witness offend the self-righteous because it, could, it should? Now, this is not, now, if it, right, I remember being in school and I've been to NAU where you've got the preacher, right, that stands on the grass with a megaphone and just yells profanity at, at women uh, and at men and just says, like, everyone's going to hell. There's a giant sign. Like, that guy, that guy just is offensive, right? Like, that's not what we're talking about here. See, the content is what's important. Because the reality about the gospel is the gospel is offensive, okay? Like the gospel story is an offensive story to all other competing stories. It must be, right? Let me share some verses with you. Luke 5, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's, that's Jesus. Now, now listen, what he's saying there is like, I didn't come to call rights, but I've come to tell people in sin that when you're walking this way in your sin to stop, acknowledge it, stop doing it, turn this way and do the other thing. And anytime you approach someone and says, listen, the way you're doing life is wrong, you need to do it this other way, that's offensive, okay? The gospel 
is necessarily an offensive thing to those outside. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the gospel is foolishness and folly to those outside, right? That when you look upon it, it just seems crazy. And I think about my entire life for 18, 19 years. Like, I was like, that's just crazy. Like, why would that be? And it's just, it is foolishness. It is offensive. And it tells the world that there's only one true story. When Jesus proclaims in John that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, that is an offensive reality to our world today. That it is the only way to God offensive, man, because it, because it tells everyone that the way that you think this should go is not necessarily the right way. There's only one way, and it's my way, and that's Jesus saying that, not me, okay? Like, here, if you're a Christian, like, the gospel in some ways should still offend you to this day, and here's what I mean by that, is like, gosh, like, when, when I'm in sin, and it's telling me, like, hey, dude, knock it off. Do something. When I, if I get into an argument with Verity, which never happens, once in a blue moon, okay? Um, and I'm in sin. The gospel's saying, like, you're a moron. Like, stop doing that. Love your wife. Serve your wife. Be a good, and on and on and on. But I want to choose me. It, it offends my own desire and my own self-righteousness. Now, these realities have to be true in the content of your witness. But here's the reality. The gospel is offensive, but you don't have to be, okay? That, that's the other end of this. Because sometimes, you're, well, the gospel is offensive, so, man, I'll do whatever I want. I'll say whatever, and if they get upset, that's on them. That's, no, no, man, like, you don't have to be a jerk. The gospel is offensive, but you don't have to be. And some of you might say, well, Jesus, man, Jesus turned over tables. John the Baptist called someone brood of vipers. Like, do you realize, though, that when he says that, the people he's, he's often and always talking to are the religious? Like, he, he's, not, he's not going to the destitute sinner, and, and you don't hear and see that. No, you see usually grace and love. Listen, the gospel is already offensive enough. You don't have to be. Present the gospel in truth and do it in grace and in mercy, okay? So that's the first question for us is, um, is this the content of your witness offend the, the unrighteous? or the self-righteous. If it doesn't, that, that means a couple things, like either you're not preaching or you're not preaching the gospel, okay? Some of you are like, well, I don't want to rock the boat. And I'm like, man, forget that. Jesus didn't say, don't rock. He said, get out of that stinking boat, right? He's like, no, man, like, come on out. It's time to follow. It's time to do what your Lord has called you to do. Let's preach the gospel, okay? Um, next one, this is Paul's defense. Now, verses 10 through 21, we read some of it, um, but essentially it's just Paul's defense and his, his retort, and he essentially says, like, no, I didn't do that. Like, he's just like, no, that's wrong, it's distorted, everything I said. But I want to read in, uh, verses 14 through 16, that leads us to our second question. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. This, this, this defense, right, leads us to our second question, which is, does the manner of your witness maintain your credibility? Because it should. Okay? 
So, so the content of your witness, is it offensive? But is the manner of your witness, does it maintain your credibility to continue to preach? And there's two main ideas, I think, that motivate and move Paul as he says this, right from the text. The first one is consistency. He's like, listen, I'm just doing what we've all agreed on this entire time, that there's a resurrection from the dead, that his gospel preaching has been the same over and over and over and in agreement with what everyone has already said. And yet now just showing, listen, they're going to try and attack me. And if they're going to attack me, they have to use things that are contradictory to what they even believe. And most of the attacks, and as I'm true, a lot of the attacks upon the church are often things that just aren't even true. And if you were to sit down, you're like, no, we don't actually believe that. But it becomes the rhetoric of the day. But in this consistency, we continue to preach and to love and serve the same way. It will go well with our credibility. And the second one, when he says that he always takes pains to have a clear conscience for God and men, he is a man of integrity. That he, that he is, as he preaches, he's always thinking, like, how, what, what does this mean here? Like, what, what does God think about this? And then, and then what do others think about this? Now, here's what I often see, and I think I often do, is I pick one. And so, so I'll, I'll let God, okay, God, I'm going to be, you know what I mean? Like, it's, we're going to be good. And what happens when you only focus on God in that moment, this gets distorted. So I'm all about what God thinks, but I could care less what people think, and that leads towards pride and arrogance. But on the other end, if you're just like, well, I just want to appease and have a clear conscience before man, but forget what God has said in truth, then that moves towards compromise. And then you begin to, uh, uh, well, let me twist, let me, let me, let me distort, let me, let me take a step back, let me water down, because, man, I don't want to offend. Again, the content is offensive. And, and so this idea, I think Paul constantly saying, no, 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 I'm going to live a life of credibility so that I can continue to preach. I'm going to constantly think through, am my message consistent, and is my life consistent, and am I a man of integrity in the way I'm able to preach and continue to have value? Now, here's the thing. You're going to screw that up all the time, okay? Like, just like me. Like, you will blow this credibility thing all the time, and then you can freak out and worry, man, did I ruin it, Right? When I used to work for, there's a company called Aveda, which I don't know if you guys have ever heard of. They do hair and skin products. Uh, and I know you look at me, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so I worked for the company for about two years. And, uh, and we got 75% off, so it made great for Christmas presents. Um, but one of the things was uh, my manager was, was a homosexual man. And in that time, I was about a sophomore in college. And I used to often say, like, you know, like, if things, I didn't like things, uh, you know, if they were stupid or they were bad, I used to say that they were gay, okay? Um, and so there was a moment where we got the shipment of shirts that came in for, uh, for like an event we were doing or something like that. I remember seeing the shirt and I didn't like the shirt and I said, man, I said, that shirt's gay, man, like that. And my boss looks at me and he goes, what do you mean by that? I'm like, oh, it's like a dumb shirt, you know? And he says, is it, you, no, what you mean is that it, does it like other male shirts, Right? Like, and like at that point, I fully knew where he was going. And so he had heard Christians use that type of language all the time, right? So that, that wasn't surprising. And I hear this, and so I'm thinking, man, I, I'm supposed to be like loving this guy and sharing this guy, and I've offended this guy for something that's, that's on me, right? Uh, now, I could have moved towards defensiveness and said, well, he's just overreacting. Just relax. It's just a word. Or I could realize and have compassion and empathy over a person who was hurting because it's something I did. 
And so one thing he hadn't seen was when a Christian then, when I went back to the back room, as other people stood around us, and I said, hey, let me stop you guys for one second. And I said, listen, man, everything I just said, that was so offensive. I'm terribly sorry. I'm in the wrong, and I'll never say that again. And that caused him to start crying, okay? And that caused him to then be re-invited back into this witness because you will fail all the time, but want to maintain your credibility? Repent of your sins just like we ask the rest of the world to. Say sorry, apologize when you've wronged those you've hurt. Live lives of integrity in that way as well, okay? In absolutely everything. Even if, listen, if you're looking back, you're like, man, there's something that happened like 10 years ago. Man, go and reconcile that too. Don't wait. Okay, let's move on. Uh, verse 22, we got to move. Um, this is Felix's response uh, to Paul's defense. Felix, again, being the governor who's presiding over this trial. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, which is Christianity, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Talking to Paul. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And designed to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, this interaction, just a recap with Felix, kind of starts off pretty good. He's like, look, man, I don't, I don't think you're guilty, but let's figure this out. We're going to bring in some other witnesses. So just go to prison for a little bit, but it's not going to be that bad. All your friends can come visit you. It seems like a good situation. But you begin to see it, uh, it kind of fall by the wayside because then he goes about 50-50 when he goes in and says, man, I want to hear you preach to me but I also want to bribe, right? And then he goes full crazy and full corrupt when because he wants to appease the Jewish people, he leaves Paul in prison for two years without trial, okay? Like he's like, you know what? I don't have to do with this. I want the Jews to be happy. I want them to continue to serve us. I don't want any problems. And so let me leave this innocent man who I believe to be innocent has no proven charges and I'm going to leave him in prison for two years. And again, I insert myself into Paul's life and think I'm supposed to be preaching to kings and yet for some reason you've got me in prison for two years for something I didn't do. In fact, I mean, I've been doing all the right things and yet you brought me to prison. I'm supposed to be preaching to kings, man. And how in that moment, I wonder if he just realized that God was using this to bring this, this governor. Felix was a governor, not a king, but a high-ranking official amongst the Roman Empire. That literally after this, after leaving the governor, he's going to Caesar, right? He's going to the big dog. And so here, he is already in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this. He is God, is bringing this king, this king figure, this governor, in to hear him preach the gospel over and over and over even by false motive within the heart of Felix. Felix goes in to get money, but he hears the gospel. Because constantly Paul has on his heart, man, how, how am I going to fulfill what God has called me to in the preaching of his word to this world? To take the gospel stands or to preach to Gentiles, Jews, and kings. And so the third question for us is this. Does your boldness of your witness move you to preach at all times? Because it should. Does the boldness of your witness, okay, so 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope 
that is in you. And, and here's a crucial part, ready? Do it with gentleness and respect. So just kind of circling back, right? It's not, hey, have, a, have an answer so you can be defensive and lash back and crush someone. No, do it with gentleness and respect, always thinking about the other as well. But, but are we? Like, do you always, in every season, as you go to work, as you go to the playground, as you go to the movies, as you go to school, as you go home, and are you always like, man, I, if I get an opportunity to preach the gospel right now, I'm going to take it. Like, if I have the opportunity to give away the best gift that I have, right? Like, I, I love, I'm like, I'm a gift giver. Like, that's kind of like my, you know, love language if you're into that. And so I just love giving stuff. So, like, Verity, like, I'm not great at many things, but, man, she gets some good gifts, Okay. <laughs> Um, and so I'm like, hey, and I'm so excited as she opens it up and she's like, oh, this is amazing and that kind of thing. Now, do I, do we, are we constantly ready to give away the best gift that we have to offer the world? Or are we kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to be weird, right? Or, or do we really believe it's that good? Just like I want to tell someone about Last Chance all the time, I want to tell someone about Jesus because it's way better than any department store, okay? Um, there's a man named Bill Bright. Now, uh, I don't know if you know him. He's the founder of Camp Crusade for Christ. Uh, again, kind of Camp Crusade was a very formative in my, in my development as a, as a young believer. But Bill Bright had this thing, and I think I've shared this here before. Um, but he had this thing where he would, he would um, trust God with different kind of like time frames in his life and say like, all right, God, I'm going to covenant with you that if you intentionally leave someone in my kind of general vicinity for a certain amount of time, I will take that as a divine invitation and I will share the gospel with them, right? And he would vary the times in his life based on kind of his schedule and life and what he felt. At one point, it got as low as I believe it was actually eight minutes. And so if he was in a place and someone was there for eight minutes, they heard the gospel. And that was his covenant with the Lord. That's season, like, hey, man. Uh, Jesus, right? Like, oh, you too, Jesus, right? And that, that was just what he did with the Lord. Now, I, my calling, I tried to do this in college at eight minutes because I was, you know, like, I'm going to do it, and like, it never worked, right? So don't set the bar higher, right? And so if God does someone in your life, it doesn't have to be the specific thing, but if maybe, maybe you want to do that, and God's like, all right, if you want a covenant, and if someone's in my life and around me for two hours, like, they just won't leave, and they just keep being there. Like, I keep, they should go, but they don't. Like, I'm just going to take that as an opportunity. I'm supposed to share the gospel with somebody. Now, now I, don't, I don't know if you want to do that, but find something that in every opportunity that the Lord continues to present, and as you identify those things, to say, you know what, man, I'm going to let the boldness of my witness allow me to free up any opportunity that God presents to preach the gospel, because it's the best gift I have, okay? Um, last thing, last little portion. I know I'm moving quick. This is a long text, uh, but it's the start of chapter 25. Essentially, we're getting a transition from the governor Felix to now Governor Festus. Okay, terrible name, not a great governor either. Okay, and so um, again, the same cycle continues where there's another plot to kill Paul. Okay, uh, there's another trial, there's no, more false accusations, and there's more of Paul's defense. And he picks it up in verse 8, and this is where we'll land the last passage. Paul argued in his defense. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, sounds familiar, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. 
But if there is nothing to their charge against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had confirmed with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So quick recap, he has three options of where he can go. He can go back to Jerusalem. It's already kind of gone bad there. There's been a plot to kill him there. Or he could stay before Festus. Who knows how much longer he'll be in prison, have a trial there. There's a plot to kill him there. Or he can go to Caesar. And here's the big deal again, is that he has maybe potentially caused a ruckus amongst the Pax Romana in Rome. And so potentially the most sure way of death for him is to go to Rome. And he says, listen, if there's anything that people find wrong in this, let's do it. I'll die. And so the fourth question for us is, does your faith in your witness move you to self-sacrifice? Because it should. Does your faith in your witness, is your faith in what God has done, who God is, Christ is Lord, the whole deal, does your faith and belief in that move you to self-sacrifice? Because it should. Because it's, it's what we've been called to, because Jesus is alive and he's real, and because he's called his church to go. He's called his church to lay it down, to live like Jesus. And this is where we land, because the beauty of the gospel story is the epitome of the fulfillment of that last question. Okay? Jesus, if, we were, if he was here, Jesus, does your faith in the gospel and your witness move you to self-sacrifice? Yes. It's that the last portion of every one of your Gospels is in the testimony of every other book in the Bible, including the Old Testament, all point to the coming suffering servant named Christ. That he answers yes to that question. That in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he sweats blood in anguish and fear of what the next day would bring in his death and his crucifixion, pleading before God the Father, God, is there any other way? God says, no, and he says, not my will, but your will be done, and he walks triumphantly upon the Mount of Calvary and delivers this world from Satan, sin, and death. All who would repent and believe and confess their faith in him. Jesus is the answer to all of these things. And so we want to triage our hearts with these questions, constantly ask ourselves these questions, because then they let us say, like, okay, well, this is kind of where I'm at. The answer is not try harder in those areas. The answer is, okay, what do I need to know about Jesus? What do I need to love about Jesus? What do me and Jesus need to reconcile and work through? That then when I ask these questions a month from now, or, you know, at the end of May for our interns, as they begin to analyze, man, what has God done? Man, they'll say, well, because my relationship with Christ has gotten stronger and grown and I believe him and he's real and alive and he's my savior and he lives in me through his spirit, that then when I answer these questions, they look different six months from now than they do right now. Because this is all a journey. No one's supposed to get every answer right today, okay? No one gets every answer right by the day you die, right? The only time answers ever get right is in glorification in heaven for eternity. But in that case, we don't need to witness anymore anyway. We'll be good. These questions help form us, shape us, expose us, but the answer is always Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love and your grace. God, we thank you that we can, um, we can take a real look at who we are, kind of uh, where we're at with you, what we believe about the gospel, what we believe about our witness, what we believe about other people who need to know about this witness, need to know about Jesus. God, you are the best gift I have. Lord, I confess and repent of the times 
I herald other gifts more than you. It's just foolish. And I'm sorry. And Lord, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, refine in me just that, that pride, that desire to be loved or appreciated or not seen as weird. God, and, and instead, man, that we would, we would just be so confirmed in our understanding of how much you love us and approve of us and justify us because of your blood on the cross that, God, we will preach in season and out of season, always being ready to give an account for the hope that we have. God, you are fascinating and amazing. Thank you for blessing us this morning. Now, Holy Spirit, do the work of transformation in our hearts. Renew our minds and make us more like Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.